Thank you, Mary, for that prelude and the words up there. Uh, thank you, Jerry, for leading us in hymns for modern reformation. If you're not familiar with those, those were written by uh, Dr. James Boyce at 10 Prez in uh, Philadelphia. He came down with cancer and was being treated very sick from the chemo and he, his uh, music director challenged him to write uh, some music and before he passed into eternity he wrote those. That The one uh, that we sang this morning is certainly one of my favorites. For when far from God and lost in sin, I took God's book and looked within and found a gift from heaven's throne, a righteousness from God made known. Where would we be without the book? And then, Christian, thank you for that really ministered to me as beautiful music, but great words. Words are important. Theology is important. God has created us with the ability to appreciate, to sing, to enjoy great music, but without the theology behind them, they're, they're empty. So thank you for ministering to me this morning. As And now we will look to the book, Amen. to the book. This is not part of worship. This is worship. When we open the book, what we are doing is evaluating our hearts, our lives before God and asking the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it to the person of God so that we mature until that glorious day. Could be today, the glorious day when Christ returns or he will take us home through the avenue of physical death, but the, the, the certainty is blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. We see him now through the eye of faith. But what kind of day is that going to be when we see him face to face? Lord, we look to you this morning. You're the true teacher. You're the true author of Holy Scripture I don't know the heart of every, everyone. I know my own heart, and it's not always pretty. Thank you that you caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ to shine in the heart of every believer. And thank you that you have not left us simply to wallow in sin, but you also are at work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure, bringing about greater progressive sanctification. So we pray this morning, do a work of grace, not only in my heart, but in the heart of every person present, as only you can see the need truly. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We are now in the sixth beatitude, and remember we started with the first one. You don't 
express these uh, attitudes to get into the kingdom of heaven. You repent, you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and these will be true to some degree in your life, and they should be cultivated and increasing in our lives. And we saw the first one, and when it says blessed, I, I don't take that means happy. It's not the people of God are unhappy, but blessed means this is God's stamp of approval upon these kind of people. And the first one is poor in spirit. Poor in our human spirit. That word for poor is one of extreme poverty, expressed very well, spiritual bankruptcy. I come before the throne of God, and I don't have any merit of my own to get into heaven. All my good works are simply unrighteousness. I need the merit of heaven, and that is found in Jesus Christ. But it's not only bankrupt and, and trusting Christ and his merit alone. It's also then in the Christian life, I don't come in by faith and suddenly abandon faith. I come in by faith and I continue in faith. John expresses it this way in John chapter 15. Christ the vine, we're the branches. If you don't abide in him and his words abide in us, we can do nothing. Oh, we can sin, but we can't do anything of any spiritual value. So the first one is crucial. God approves those who are poor in spirit, who look to him for salvation and look to him for sanctification. And therefore, we have the promise of the kingdom of heaven. The second one, divine approval for mourners. Unbelievers mourn. They mourn over a number of different things, but this is those who are in the kingdom of heaven, our sense of mourning is different. We mourn over our sin. We mourn over the sin of others. David, in Psalm 119, he said, Rivers of water run down my eyes because people do not keep your law. We mourn over our nation. We mourn over the progression of what has happened and continues to go downhill in our own nation. But we, and each one of these, it's very emphatic in, in the text, and it's, when it says they, it means there's a little pronoun there, they alone will be comforted. They alone will have the paraclete. They alone will know that divine comfort from heaven. We looked at the third one, the divine approval for the meek, often rent to render gentle. We looked at Psalm 37, which really explains what a meek person is. It's often in when we are attacked by evil person. We do not return evil for evil, but rather blessing, and we commit our way to God and trust that he will eventually vindicate us, and there's a gentleness there when Jesus, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me. Come, come. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You, you come to Christ. There's no one with better open arms 
and more gentleness. But if you reject him, he will be like a mountain that crushes you. So, so come to him. The meek will inherit the earth. We talked about divine approval for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, we, have, we, we get hungry, we thirst every day, and, and it's appropriate that we take in physical food. In the same way, there should be a hunger and thirst daily for practical righteousness, knowing what God's righteous standard is and seeking to be conformed to that. And the promise is that we will be satisfied for that day, and the next day we should be get up and continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and God will promise us that we be satisfied for that day. We looked at a divine approval for the merciful. I'm reading a, a small booklet by B.B. Warfield, one of the great, some think next to Jonathan Edwards, he may have been the greatest theologian uh, in America, and he wrote a small booklet on the emotional life of our Lord. No one's more merciful than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one. And mercy is an emotional element. It starts on the inside. It's compassion. Jesus would look out not only at the crowds, their sheep without a shepherd. And it says he was moved with compassion. That's, that's a verb there for, for pity. It starts internally, and but it doesn't stop there. It results in an external act of help. And this, this is true of believers. We're to be a merciful people as we look out and we see sin so rampant we should be moved within and stand for truth but hold out the gospel if we accommodate ourselves to sin that's not mercy that that's that's giving away what Spurgeon called you're a thief you're giving away what is not right for you to give away God's truth you have to hold out the truth and when we are merciful people, we will receive mercy from God. What, where would we be without a throne of grace and mercy? To call upon him continually. And then we come to today for divine approval for the pure in heart. And what are they promised? Those who are pure in heart, they will see God. Now, again, as Sinclair Ferguson has reminded us, you don't pick and choose among these and say, well, I just want number three or number four. No, all of these are to be true in our lives, and they are true to some extent, or you're not a believer. If, if none of these things, you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what, I can't identify with any of those characteristics. Then you need to examine yourself. You need to go back and repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But they also should be increasing in our lives as we use the means of grace. So I asked the question about heart purity. What exactly is heart purity. Well, there's a positional purity, 
when God takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. But there's also a practical purity, a purity of heart, and that is, uh, I think the emphasis here is upon heart purity. So when you think about the heart and what the heart is, you've gone over this a number of times with me. It's your mind. It's the way you think. It's the way you respond to that thinking with your will. It's your conscience. That's an aspect of the way uh, you, you think. It's your motives, why you're doing something for a certain reason is included there. And then it is your actions. So in heart purity, the mind thinks rightly about God with a clean conscience, bound to truth, the will, your ability to choose. You choose the right things. You respond in faith and obedience to God and his truth with pure motives. And then the emotions and affections respond to God with genuine love. What's an impure heart? Well, it starts with the mind thinking wrongly about God. And therefore, you have a defiled conscience that is not bound to Scripture, but is bound to whatever you think is right, or I may think is right. And then the will rejects God and his truth. Sometimes it's a rejection in ignorance, but it is still a rejection. There's rebellion, there's hypocrisy, and the emotions and affections reveal a, a, a love that opposes God. Now I'm going to pause here because the survey came out this week that Ligonier and Lifeway Research put together. Every two years, they kind of take the pulse of our nation. What, where are we at? What are we thinking? It began in 2014. They do it every two years, and it, and it came out. And I just want to walk through some of these with you and challenge myself as well as I challenge you. I would ask the question, starting with our nation, because this is the United States. They're not doing this polling other countries. Does our, does our nation as a whole have a pure heart? No, it does not. Do we as a local church have a pure or an impure heart? These, these are more uh, heart-searching questions. I can be easily deceived. But then third, it comes down to, do I have a pure or an impure heart? And how would I know? So let me walk through uh, uh, some of these uh, first, I'm just going to do just one in terms of this is the nation as a whole. These aren't people who are professing believers, and so they'll they'll survey and say um, uh, the general results. Uh, it, Americans increasingly reject the Bible's divine origin and more readily embrace sexual behavior that is condemned in Scripture. If you you would have to have your head buried in the sand if you didn't see that in our country uh, today. Increasingly, it is accepted the, that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts 
of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Now, when I say literal, this involves symbolism. It involves metaphors in the Bible. When Jesus says, you know, I'm the door, he's not talking about a chunk of wood back there. It's a metaphor. He's, he's access. But when it says it's not literally true, it means you can't take it at face value. If there's anything that continues to increase, it's that U.S. adults, and I don't know how, what age they put forth as adults, increasingly reject the divine authorship of the Bible. And when you reject the divine authorship of this book, you know what? You have rejected the God of heaven above because this is his book. He's the one who has authored it. So when we do that, now we're on our own. And what is, what is happening as a result of our nation being on its own? I mean, we mourn over what is taking place. Now the next one is what makes me even more sadder. It's going to be the results among evangelicals, not among adults in general in our country. Now, here's how they identified evangelicals. So if you're going to respond as an evangelical, you had to strongly agree with the following four statements. First of all, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. I think most of us or all of us in this room would probably identify with that. It's very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. We, we endorse that. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. I would say anyone's sin. And only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, what would you expect in a survey to reveal if these are the people who are surveyed? Scripture contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it is not literally true. 20% of those who identify as evangelicals would agree with that. That's a, that's a one-fourth of those who just professed those things. Secondly, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. And that's hypocrisy. You can't possibly have said the Bible is the highest authority and then turn around and say it's a matter of personal opinion. 38%. God accepts the worship of all religions. You just said Jesus alone is the Savior and let let alone over half of evangelicals, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, it, it, it doesn't matter, all, all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. God learns and adapts to circumstances. Now, almost half of evangelicals, I think that's the inroad of open theism that uh, God doesn't really know. Uh, he just knows the end, he doesn't know how it's going to get there. In other words, open theism says God doesn't know everything, and he just has determined, um, for example, if it was a, a baseball game, God determined who's going to win, but what the score is and who hits it. 
That's terrible. Just read in the Bible about every minute thing that God knows and controls. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Let us go. These are professing evangelicals. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Dead, depraved, blind, it doesn't sound like innocent. And how much are we affected by culture? Gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% of evangelicals would say that. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. Almost half of evangelicals agree with that. And I just say, whoa. Whoa, is it the church? Of Jesus Christ. And woe, woe is me as a preacher if I buy into that. Uh, woe is up as, as elders if we buy into that. We, we have a great accountability to stand before God one day. And he's going to say to you, how did you shepherd my people? Amen. You gave them lies. You gave them deception. You gave them untruth. Or did you give them the truth and you, did you do it in a kind, loving manner, calling them to walk with God and to guard your own heart? I'm not surprised the results from our nation, but it is a sad commentary on what professing evangelicalism would have to say. Now, I want to relate why I'm bringing this back to a pure heart. Your heart is the way you think. You have bad thoughts, wrong thoughts, idolatrous thoughts. You don't have a pure heart. There is a relationship between biblical doctrine, between truth and holy devotion. Paul prayed it this morning. How, how are we going to be thoroughly furnished for every good work if we don't know the scriptures and believe them and hold to them? 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. How are we going to mature? Verse 1, you get rid of, you put off all this sin, and then what are you supposed to do? Eagerly desire like newborn babies. It doesn't say you are newborn babies. It says just like a newborn baby. Eagerly desire the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it, that word, you may be able to grow up, to mature in your salvation. Amen. Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, I want to emphasize a passage here that has been very helpful to me through the years to remind myself of. The goal of divine authoritative instruction. That's what this book is. It's authoritative instruction from heaven. The goal is love, is love. But what kind of love? It springs, there are one preposition governs all these. It's love that comes from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Let me put it diagrammed like this. It's 1 Timothy 1.5, 1, 
What are we supposed to do supremely? What's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4? With all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Matthew chapter 22. So, uh, Anamikos, a legal expert in Mosaic law, and he came up and he says, you know, um, and Jesus says, so, so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. And what's the second one? And your neighbor as yourself. In that, the whole law is fulfilled. And there's not a third one that says love yourself first to be able to do those first two. We already love ourselves too much. So the goal of authoritative biblical instruction is love. It's love. I can't love God. I can't love my neighbor as myself. Well, how does that come from? Where does it spring from? I have to have a pure heart. If I have an impure heart, then love is tarnished. If I don't have a good conscience, love is tarnished. If I don't have a sincere faith, my love for God is, 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 is tarnished. I have an impure heart. It's love from a pure heart. The mind and will and emotions have to be in harmony with God and his revealed truth. It has to be from a good conscience, trained by scripture and bound to scripture. And it has to be from sincere faith, believing and obeying truth without hypocrisy. I ask myself, would I, would I want every thought, every motive, and every action that I've had this past week that is sinful to be put on a billboard out here by 75 for everybody to see. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'd be terribly ashamed. And I don't even know how many of them there might be because I, I pray this, like David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be some wicked way in me and, oh, lead me in the way everlasting. I'm not even completely competent to judge my own heart. But if I'm concerned about that, how much more should I be concerned about, about what God sees from heaven above? This, blessed are those with a pure heart. We should be a people that are constantly guarding the heart, examining our heart in light of Scripture under the illuminating work of the Spirit of God and asking the question, Lord, do I, do I have a pure heart in my practice? When sin comes into my life, am I so quick to repent of sin, of any thought, any motive? This, this one on blessed are the impure heart. If my toes are a little bruised this morning, you're just seeing, if I took off my shoes, you'd see how really bruised they are after working through this one. Thank you, Lord, for the conviction of sin. Thank you for disciplining us that we might be able to be the peaceful fruit of righteousness would result in our, in our lives. Well, let's start in just talking about a pure heart, the importance of the condition of the heart before God.
we want to be concerned because we don't, one, one writer said, if what Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees could say, blessed are the outwardly clean. We don't want to be satisfied with outward cleanliness. We want that internal uh, cleanliness uh, that can only be produced by God himself. All right, the importance of the condition of the heart. Uh, you can turn back to 1 Samuel, and Saul has been rejected. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Even, even the prophet Samuel fell into the trap of looking on the exterior. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his, his sons. And Samuel was filled with fear. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord told him how. So here comes um, the sons he consecrated uh, Jesse and his sons, verse 5, invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He, he looks like a good candidate. He's looking on the exterior. The Lord said, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Yahweh, the covenantal God, he sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, and he said, not him. And he called Shema, not him. And the Lord hasn't chosen this one. And Samuel's scratching his head, and he says, uh, what am I going to do? Um, are all your sons here? He said, no, there, there's one. There's the youngest. He's keeping the sheep. Now, the issue of the exterior, uh, look, look at verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. So there's, there's nothing wrong with the external appearance, but there better be something on the internal appearance as well. The Old Testament scholar Dale Davis well remarks, that verse 16-7 reaches forward as well as back. The key text, the first and second Samuel here, sets itself not only against the likes of Saul and Eliab, but also in later pages against everyone's ideal Mr. Israel. Remember Absalom, how he stole the hearts of all the people? We must not conclude that God opposes fine appearance as if ugliness or repulsiveness makes the sine qua non of God's call. But externals neither qualify nor disqualify. It simply doesn't matter in the long run. God looks at the heart. I meet, I meet someone who is a believer and we sit down together. I want to I, 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 I know, do you pray? Do you pray? And what do you pray about? 
That'll, that'll tell me a lot listening to a person pray. Men, do you, do you enjoy being with your wife? That's going to tell me a lot about the condition. Do you weep? Do you mourn over sin? These are internal. Do you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? This is telling us that's what God is looking at. And you want to know how to get rid of the deception in, in your heart? Um, take the book. Take the book, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. You know what it does? It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so I, I open the book. I'm back to Dr. Boyce. When far from God and lost in sin, I took God's book and looked within and found a righteousness. How gracious, how merciful is God to give us a book not only to reveal to us our need of salvation, but our need of growth and grace, our, our need to grow and, and look to him. One cannot study 1 Samuel 16 without sensing, ultimately, the presence of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 dominates the chapter with its emphatic, man looks on the outer appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. What is this but an Old Testament rendition of John 2.25? For Christ himself knew what was in man. Who then is this before whom we stand? Have we, have we failed to see Christ because we put so much stock in appearance? Isaiah 53.2, he, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's, there's the only one man ever, God himself, who took on human flesh, who has a pure heart that has never had one spot of impurity in it. Solomon, at the prayer of dedication of the temple, was finally completed, and he made this statement. Lord, here in heaven, hear us in your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways, for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of man. Old Testament, New Testament, it's a solid affirmation that God is omniscient. It's not that your exterior is irrelevant. Premarital counseling, I, I always bring this verse up at the end. You have bookends around the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you come down to the end of Proverbs 31, and who's it highlight? highlights a woman who has the fear of the Lord in her heart. It says, beauty is what? 
It's deceitful. How is beauty deceitful, Jerry? Yeah, because you, you can attract people to you by external beauty. And you can think more highly of yourself because you have external beauty. But the fear of the Lord is that which is on the interior and is that that's what is important. So I have to ask myself, as I ask you, do you have an impure heart? What is my heart before God? Am I constantly evaluating my heart, my thoughts? And when impure thoughts come across that the culture just buy into this, buy into this, you, you, you need, and I need to do the same. Pray for us as elders. Pray for us that we won't cave in. And we pray for you that you won't cave in. The onslaughts are terrible against the church to buy into a impure heart that dishonors God. We, we know from reading scripture it may have been, I forget what percent of evangelicals was a 54% say man is, is born innocent. No, the heart is deceitful above all else. Older translation, uh, deceitful and desperately evil. That word desperately is actually used in Jeremiah of an incurable wound. It's incurably evil. How can an Ethiopian change his spots? How can a leopard change his spots? He can't. You need divine help from heaven. Jesus said it this way, the heart of unbelief. If you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. An evil heart can do good, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Even sinners can love other sinners with an impure heart. The hypocrisy uh, of the a heart, um, hypocrisy is an external appearance without the reality in the heart. Even Turgenev, a 19th century Russian novelist, said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. A good man, apart from Jesus Christ, I know some good people on this level, but the heart before God is complete unrighteousness. What is, what is my heart? Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I preaching this morning? If it's not for the glory of God, then I got an impure heart. How many things are we supposed to do for the glory of God? Everything. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, you do for the glory of God. What is the glory of God? I am treating him with the utmost of importance. He's the most important person in the universe. The hypocritical heart says, outwardly clean, but inwardly terrible. What did Jesus? Whitewashed sepulchers, rotting, rotting on the inside, but whitewashed on the outside. Well, what are the requirements for a pure heart? Is certainly there's a there's a uh, 
provision found from God in the substitutionary atonement. Romans 3, 21 through 26, one of the most crucial passages in the New Testament regarding the atonement. How are people's sins forgiven in the Old Testament? You would say, well, they offered animal sacrifices and those types of things. Yes, but that was only provisional. That could never, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It's a teaching tool. It's looking forward to. So in that passage, it says God, in a sense, overlooked the sins that were to come, because, that were committed because he knew the Savior was coming. And it is on the basis of Jesus Christ that anybody's sins are forgiven, past, current, future. It is that provision for an atonement. If you're here this morning and you have never come to Jesus Christ on his terms, his terms are this. Nothing that you can do can merit heaven. So you submit to him and you say, I have sinned, I am guilty, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, O Lamb of God, I come. If you have never done that before, do it now. You're never assured of another breath that you will have. Cling to him. But what about the provision for an impure heart for those of us who are who are believers, what do we do when we sin? Turn to 1 John chapter 2. like the translation there, advocate for par parakletos. My little children, it's a diminutive of child, but John is using that kindly and talking about believers. So my little children, it's just a, my, my dear children, my dear fellow believers, my dear co-people in, in the family of God. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Don't sin before God. Ah. But we still know how often we fail in motive and intent. The sin that still dwells within us. But if anyone does sin, there it is. We have a paraclete. We have an advocate on our behalf with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what do you do? I go back to him. Satan says, see, see, what kind of preacher are you? you? You did something unkind. You did something for a wrong motive. Oh, the grosser sins have fallen away. But oh, the sins that still stain my mind occasionally of thinking impure thoughts of, of, of God that um, I'm not quite as accountable to him maybe as I think I am or, or whatever. No. And so what do we do? We come back before him. 
You put off the sin. You confess it. And then you replace it. You put on, you replace it with the right kind of behavior. When is a person no longer a liar? When he starts telling the truth. And how do you get there? That's the, that's the in-between part. You put off lying. You engage in mind renewal. You take God's word. What passages have to speak to me about that habit? And then I replace it with truth. So, thank you, Lord, for the provision for an impure, impure heart. Keep short accounts with God. You're not going to enjoy your fellowship, your relationship with God, with sin in your life. We can be thankful for that, that I don't enjoy sin anymore. Its taste buds are different for those who have believed upon Jesus Christ. Then protection, finally, of a pure heart. How, how, do you, how do you protect your heart before God? I told my Latin students I was going to have them quote it this morning, but they said they weren't going to show up if I, if I did that. But I'm going to ask one of them to do it anyway. Oh, he just gritted his teeth. Come on, you, you can do it. Above all? Very good. You got it. Yes. Yeah, this is a wonderful translation of Proverbs 4.23 in Latin because above all the things that you guard, it's an imperative, guard your heart. Because from it, and I love this one, life proceeds. Life proceeds from your heart. All your decisions are coming out of your heart. So how do you guard your heart? You have to guard your thinking. And you need scripture. That's why we read it. What's God going to do? It's going to expose to me my sinful thoughts, my sinful motives, my sinful attitudes. Trust God's word. Go to the throne of grace. I need to be under the means of grace. I need to be the assembly of the saints. I need you. What do we do when we come together? Stimulate one another to love and to good works. I need you occasionally perhaps to rebuke me. I need to be accountable to my fellow elders. What do we do when we come to together in an elders meeting? How you doing? How you doing? Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Now, this, this was very striking. Some of you may have know about this. This is from uh, the LA Times a while back. And it was a uh, gal, and uh, she was uh, this L.A. Times story carried this of Anna Mae Penica. She was a 62-year-old lady who had been blind from birth. At 47, she married a man from her Braille class, and for 15 years he did the seeing for both of them until he lost his vision and then Anna May had never seen the green of spring or the white of winter, and yet she had grown up in a supportive family. She never felt resentful about her handicap. And then in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of UCLA performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from her left eye, and for the first time, 
she could see. Well, no, no wonder, you know, during the ministry of our Lord, and have mercy, blind Bartimaeus, what, what was that like to see for the first time? Well, she says she was amazed how much bigger and brighter things were. Since that day, she's hardly been able to wake up, to wake up in the a.m., splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing light. Her vision is now almost 20-30, good enough to pass a driver's test, and now she can see the faces that she only felt, waves she had only heard, sunsets she had only dreamed. The writer says, I can only fathom seeing for the first time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We see him now through the eye of faith. I, I, I know there's a realm of angels. I know there's a spiritual battle. I know there's such a person as Satan. I know that he hates you and he hates me and he would like, he can't take away our salvation, but he can certainly influence us to dishonor God. And so I need to take up the whole armor of God. He's throwing spiritual darts at you and at me, and how am I going to resist? i got to take up the shield of faith. This book, i got to know it. i got to believe it. i got to respond to it. So we walk by sight now, not by faith. By, I mean by sight, not by faith. We walk just, that, that's why you know your Bibles when the preacher can't quote it correctly. We walk by faith now, not by sight. But the day is coming. The day is coming when faith will turn to sight. We just get a little glimpse of that in the scriptures. Paul said, I, I went up to the third heaven, and I don't even know if I was in my body or out of the body, but believe me, it was so incredibly fantastic, but guess what? I'm not allowed to tell you about it. And a thorn in the flesh was given to me, so I won't boast about, about that. What effect should that have upon us looking forward to seeing our Lord Jesus Christ face to face? Remember, Thomas said, Hey, I'm not going to believe, even the, the others, the Lord had appeared in that closed room, and um, they told him, we've seen the Lord, and he turned to the other, no, no, I'm not going to believe it either, unless I see what? And what do I see here? And so, about a week later, the Lord showed up, the doors were shut and locked, and the Lord appeared. I, no wonder he has to say to them, peace I give to you, peace I leave with you, they're probably... <laughs> pretty startled and all right Thomas put your hands right here okay Thomas put your hand right here be not unbelieving but believing and what did Thomas say my Lord and my God and Jesus said oh blessed are all those 
who have not seen and yet believe. But the day is coming. The day is coming, my friends, when every one of us will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And then we will know as we do not know now. So we press on. He is worth it. We fight a spiritual battle. We love one another. We don't cave into culture. I say, oh, Lord, when I see that impurity has tainted my heart, make me quick to repent. Make me go to the word of God and whatever that impurity that I'm aware of, help me to guard scripture in my heart, my life, so that I don't keep repeating that. And thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that never loses its power. And thank you for the advocate from heaven who is always there and saying, come. I'm not going to scold you, Pastor George. I'm going to forgive you. I may discipline you for your own good and for my glory. May God make us a people who increasingly train our hearts. There's a heart that's trained in greed, and there's a heart that is trained in righteousness. So maybe you get up in the morning or and you're just reading scripture and it doesn't seem like all the lights went on and, and 4th of July, you keep reading that day by day and you keep training your heart, running God's word through your heart and all these prayers that you can pray. Psalm 8611, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Psalm 141, 3 and 4, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to practice wickedness. It's reliance upon God. I don't know your heart, but I'm in alignment with that Russian poet. I know my own heart, and at times... I need to go to the advocate and say, Lord, forgive me as your child for sinning against you. May I be increasingly quick to repent because the day is coming when we're going to see God face to face. And it'll be worth it then. It'll all be worth it.